Hello, and welcome to the Pine of Science Ireland podcast. Pine of Science Ireland aims to shine a light on Irish research and bring you extended cuts of the science festival taking place in pubs across Ireland as part of the international Pint of Science. I am Peter Labrocki Cox, and today I'm chatting with Killian Murphy about how we can learn to live with the natural world around us and maybe try to reintroduce some parts of what we've lost. Grab a pint, it's starting. Hi, Killian. How are you doing? I'm doing good. We'd like to kind of start these things off with you giving us a background of how you got to where you are, you know, how, how you kind of your science story. Definitely not the traditional or straightforward route, I would say. I definitely took probably the most convoluted path to get where I am. I initially was very interested in history and English. They were kind of my first loves, but always had a, a grow for the natural world and grew up in Mead, spent time in a lot, like spent a lot of my childhood out in, in the field, spent a lot of time in Cork as a child and again the same my grandfather was a forester so taking us out and picking up deer sheds and like just bringing us around forests in Ireland and I think that was always kind of a those two went hand in hand for me so like English and, and the natural world as I went through secondary school then you kind of have to make the choice which which are you going to do and I eventually chose science I think undergraduate and trinity was a great choice because you got the kind of broad spectrum beginning but it was bad for me because I knew I wanted to do zoology so I had to suffer through geology had to suffer through mathematics initially and then got to the end and just loved the last two years i actually ended up doing environmental science because my grades weren't great in the first couple of years and i taught zoology traditionally in trinity was quite competitive in our year it wasn't but so i chose environmental science as the safe option finished up and was paired with andrew jackson for my undergraduate thesis where i had read a book the summer prior about wolves in oregon and this absolute lunatic he basically went out into the wilderness in north america and lived with wolves and for me, it was kind of this moment of realization that like you always, especially in Ireland, the fairy tales of wolves are like this crazy, ferocious predator that would rip you out of bed and kill you. Whereas this book kind of showed the hum- the more humane side of the animal and the kind of family bond they have and a little bit about their ecology. And I was just blown away. So then went to Andrew Jackson, told him I wanted to go to Oregon. I wanted to work with wolves. And he laughed. <laughs> um, so he taught me about age-based modeling, which is kind of the beginning of my quantitative ecology journey. And we looked at Wolf for Introduction in Ireland. And then following my final year project, I spoke to Andrew Jackson about doing a PhD about wolves. And he said, there are no wolves in Ireland. And if you want to get a job, you're never going to work in Ireland. So do you want to live in Ireland? And I do. So he goes, don't work on wolves. Work on what wolves eat, which are deer. So he said, be the deer guy and you'll be able to work anywhere. So never, ever taught that advice ever again. Fully wanted to work on wolves. So messaged every university professor I could in Britain and Ireland didn't get the best final year grades in college either so it didn't have a lot of options in terms of PhDs and research because obviously it's very competitive one of the people I messaged was Simone Chudi who worked in UCD he was a new starter he had just moved over here from North America and I had this kind of copy and paste email but he replied to it quite enthusiastically saying come into my office we'll have a chat and it was my first time going to Science West in UCD and it was only a couple of weeks after I'd finished my undergrad and I'd started working for a consultancy company so I went into Simone with a couple of ideas and we sat there and chatted for about four and a half hours which I thought was kind of an anomaly but it turns out that would be kind of the norm going forward for the next four and a half years and um, so Simone had just come from North America where he had worked on kind of landscape scale applied ecology he's also very quantitative himself so I was able to kind of waffle my way through the first meeting with the little bit of undergrad thesis I'd done and the bit of our programming I'd done in my undergrad so he gave me this project that he said was essentially finished and I was going to have a publication by December that would make up for my bad grades and I'd be able to do start my PhD that project was just published this year so nearly four and a half years later 
But the relationship had started in the interim. I went to New Zealand with six of my mates and had a bit of a year away. And then Simone got funding for a project called Smart Deer. Um, and I came back from New Zealand to work on that project, which then I had Andrew Jackson in my ear saying, be the deer guy. So it all kind of came full circle. Worked on Smart Deer, which is a two-year master's, but knew from the day one that I wanted to do a PhD. For me, that was kind of do or die. So I knew on the first day that I wanted to do four years, not two. So it was aggressive trying to get funding. And then we eventually did a side project on TB and the department wanted to do a little bit more on that. So we tacked on two more years and here we are. So definitely a bit of a windy road and a lot of luck and a lot of hard work, but uh, not the traditional route by any account. Yeah, I think that's actually a thing that's kind of certainly true for myself and, and true for other people as well that we've talked about on this podcast. I think like a lot of a lot of scientists ends up getting to where they are through quite a circuitous route. So you talk a bit about quantitative ecology. Would you just give us a very brief kind of description? Like, what is that? Like, what 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 is that versus just regular ecology? So I, I don't know. Wouldn't know how to describe regular ecology because I think ecology is so splintered and there's hundreds of different interests, and that's what I love about it. I think for me, being able to take the kind of English and history aspect and tell stories through science was why I initially fell in love with it. Quantitative ecology is maybe one of the best for that because you're able to tell these stories that no one else can see because you're looking at such long time frames and such large areas so quantitative ecology is essentially the the use of computers and data and technology to unravel things that the human eye can't see so the two the two primary fields of ecology i work in are quantitative ecology so things like simulations things like long-term data analysis machine learning and then applied ecology so what can we learn from the outputs of those machines and put them into real world and put them into the hands of a farmer or a forester or a hunter and say, this is how we can best manage what's happening on the ground based on what the computer is predicting might happen based on what's happening in the past. Mm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I suppose um, you're talking about using machines to kind of see something that we can't usually see. And it just kind of strikes me that when you're talking about quantitative ecology, you're talking about like large scale stuff we can't see as opposed to like a lot of what people think science is, is looking at like the small scale stuff we can't see. It's kind of like these two areas where we don't ex- exist and we kind of like have to look at them in, from through different lenses. There was a great infographic on my very first day in Trinity, and it was Luke O'Neill who did it. It went from an atom to a cell, to a muscle tissue, to a skeletal system, to a tiger, to a tiger in a jungle, to a tiger in a full environment with clouds and everything, and then all the way up to like a cell on a piece of rock in space. And it was basically like that splintering of ecology into these hundreds of different subfields. And I remember, I remember looking at the tiger and being like, "That's what I'm going to do." <laughs> I remember thinking like, geez, I wouldn't have a breeze about 99.9% of any of this. Mm. And it's just like, I think if you're in a field like that, you're always going to be interested and entertained for like throughout your career. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And if you're not, you just change the perspective a little bit. You find something else. Yeah, yeah. that's why I, that's why I like what I work on because I can swap yeah. most species or environments or depending on who has the good data. Mm. <laughs> who has the good data? <laughs> We're like drug addicts. We're just looking for the good data. So you've talked a bit about quantitative ecology, right? But could you give us maybe a bit more of a rundown of like what that is exactly? And maybe some examples of where that's made a difference for people, the environment or animals. I think it's especially important in ecology to look at these things in terms of large scale and long temporal timelines because the human kind of perception of how the natural world works is it's just so fundamentally flawed like we we can't operate on the timelines that that nature does so a good example of this is that project that Simone handed me initially this kind of simple four-week plan to get a publication was it was a 52-year study in North Dakota 
looking at mule deer which are a very valuable game species over there so they're hunted for you just buy tickets you hunt them and um, it's a big big business the population began to go down over time concurrently with this kind of massive boom in oil and gas exploration over there and the oil and gas exploration was taking place in kind of core mule deer habitat and especially over winter core habitat so like the best quality habitat is really really important for these deer because this is a kind of a continental plateau so it's 2,000 miles from from either seaboard and it's really really subject to harsh weather so population was going down everyone initially blamed the oil and gas but then the hunters also blamed the coyotes because coyote populations went up as kind of more large predators like wolves and pumas went down so everyone was kind of pointing the finger at their own special interest group and this is very very typical in ecology something goes bad anecdotal evidence you blame what you see so we had this 52 year data set of every single well that had ever been drilled in north dakota we had two censuses of the deer every year we had censuses of the coyotes and then we had the weather information so by modeling that we weren't looking at kind of one year or kind of a freak accident for example there's a really really bad winter in 2008 that caused the population to crash and a lot of the hunters said oh it's the weather now not the coyotes magically changed so we modeled this and we modeled it again and again and again because you can model something it'll tell you it's important but unless you're absolutely sure that your model is robust you shouldn't communicate that result especially with something so charged as this and the final model showed that it was harsh weather in combination with coyotes or in combination with oil and gas that was causing this decline and that allowed us then to give to the north dakota fishing game this kind of evidence-based way to manage it so going forward now during harsh weather they know that they can either shoot more coyotes or during harsh winters they know to like plant more habitat around oil and gas fields good irish example then is the little side project i did for the department which was Looking at Clearfell Forestry, which is our primary system of forestry in Ireland, it's like monoculture, sick of spruce, grow it for 30, 40 years, and then you cut it all down. I'm sure anyone who's kind of gone for a hike in the country has seen these kind of desolated parts of forestry where it's just cut down. And farmers anecdotally in Wicklow were kind of saying, look, there's a lot of deer in our land. When we cut the forest, we see even more deer. We think that it's causing a higher instance in TB. So we took that, and again, we looked at this kind of landscape scale project. We looked at six different spatial fields and we looked at three different years we brought in the wildlife data we brought in the weather data we brought in the environmental data we brought in the farm data so we looked at this across the country we had like forty thousand farms in the cohort and we did kind of a, a medical analysis so a case control so the farms that had tb were our case because not every farm in the area gets tb and we wanted to know why and what we found was that it wasn't as simple as you cut the forest and wildlife go out and give everyone tb we found that when you cut these forests you're causing this massive landscape scale disturbance and whatever is living in there flees and be that a badger or a deer we haven't disentangled that quite yet at the moment that lowered tb in farms close to the forest but in farms further away it increased it and then three years later the farms further away had a decrease in tb and the farms closer to it had an increase because the landscape is changing over time so the initial desolation is pushing these animals out and then the regeneration is pulling them back in. Well, that's the hypothesis. So we're looking at these kind of like really, really intricate processes happening over long time frames that we can't see with the naked eye. But rigorous analysis of good data will, will tell you those stories. It's really interesting. It's like just the way you're expressing it there, explaining it there, it just feels like to me like it's a pulse. Like you kind of like have this action. There's a pulse of animals. They spread and then they contract and it, it like moves. I suppose that's kind of what we're talking about when we're looking at like 
you know, quantitative ecology, we're looking at it from this big scale. So instead of looking at like individual animals or individual, like, you know, we're looking at like how do they act with the environment, with all that. And also I, I, I thought what, what you were talking about before with uh, the American study that you worked on. So it, it strikes me essentially as a quantitative ecologist, what you, you, you are is kind of a narc where you're just figuring out who to blame, right? You know, it's like, it's this guy, blame this dude, right? Or blame these guys, right? And I mean, it's really important for us to know these things, right? Because like, otherwise, how can we fix them? So I suppose, yeah, kind of leading on from that, like what are like some key kind of like, so when we're looking at quantitative ecology, we're looking at, we're not looking at a single thing most of the time. We're looking at like interactions between different factors, right? It's never going to be just coyotes. It's never going to be just oil and gas. Although let's be honest, oil and gas is a big part of it. Um, it's going to be a connection of all these different things, weather, all these kind of things coming in. So like, I suppose you've, you've kind of given examples, but what, what, what are like some of the, like the really important factors that you kind of look at initially when you're looking at these systems? I think it's more complex than that. And I think it's a little bit, it goes back to that kind of love for history. I think it kind of, you need to understand the context of that landscape. I think what nature is, is the tapestry of the past and the threads that make up that tapestry are the interconnectedness of, human history and geology and environmental history and political interventions and that ship arrived on that shore and they decided to cut down that forest and then these animals moved that way so you really need to understand the historical context of not only your study site but the people who are occupying and living around that study site and then that gives you kind of zero place to start where you can start to look around and say okay let's have like for instance like the set of variables that you would look for in a farming community in ireland would not be applicable to an inuit community in the north of canada You'd have to you'd have to really get to grips with what is the history, what is the culture, what is the management, what is the practices, what are the policies. So like I think those are probably the best threads to start with, rather than kind of specific actors. What has changed this landscape? So first of all, there's the the geological history, which influences the soil and and the rivers and all that kind of stuff. The the natural history, so what species have been there, what species are there now, why are they missing? Was it a natural loss or was it due to humans? What's the human history? Not only in terms of ancient history, but modern history. So like the Irish landscape's changed so much in the last 200 years because of cultural, historical and political change. So we need to understand that before we begin to change or fix things for the future. So so I suppose, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's kind of like, uh, like you're kind of a detective. Like there are these themes that you follow, but they're going to be quite different in terms of like the interactions. And I think that's probably the most important thing you can learn as a young scientist. Like for me anyway, I... I just wanted to run straight away. I wanted to sprint to the finish. Whereas Simone was instrumental in kind of teaching me to pull back, step back and examine your analysis. And I think it's so iterative and slow. For instance, you could get a data set that requires a lot of interrogation. You could have the answer in four hours or you could have the answer in 40 days, depending on, depending on luck, number one. But then also like the threads that you follow, they might just immediately make sense or might lead you down some dark dark alleys that you have to find your way out of to find the real answer and then of course the real answer is only real in that moment until new information is presented and then you have to update you have to challenge so like ecology is not fixed even like things that have happened in the past like new data can shine new light on old projects and you need to constantly be updating and challenging your interpretations yeah yeah i think that's true for most studies but i can imagine it being particularly true for ecology right there's this concept from Daniel Dennett. He's a philosopher that deals with science a lot. He talks about how you need to misunderstand something in order to get closer to an understanding of it. So in school, 
a lot of us would have learned about Bohr's model of the atom, for example. And then later, if you go on to learn more, you realize that it's actually just a really simplistic version of how we understand atoms to work, right? But you need to understand that incorrect version to get to the more correct version, like a stepping ladder or something. And no matter who you are, right, you're always going to have some kind of incorrect view of the world because no one understands everything about anything, right? They just might be closer than most. And, you know, I think a lot of films and popular media, they try to, like, I don't know, idolize or popularize science. And I don't think I've seen a better job of it being done than the new Oppenheimer film because it's like this three and a half hour, whatever it is, epic and... 20% of the film is him learning how to be a scientist. 40% of the film is him trying to build this project and it's failures and it's scrapping and it's debate and it's constants and it's different ideologies trying to enter the project, which influences the outcome of the project. And then the last part is this kind of marriage between science and politics, which a huge part of my work would involve that. And I think it showed it really, really well how the politicians want to deliverable. The scientists are trying to be rigorous. They're trying to be objective and the kind of nexus where those two meet, it's a really interesting but complex kind of field. So in quantitative ecology, there's, as you've said, kind of like these themes that you look at to try and determine what these interactions will be that are like leading to this end result. Personally, I think one of the things that can be kind of disregarded or one of the themes that can be kind of disregarded by a lot of people is the human factor, right? Like I think people can sometimes think, well, humans have done all this damage and animals are the ones suffering. So we kind of screw the humans. We need to focus on the animals without really understanding that if it doesn't work for humans, it's not going to work, right? It's just not. I mean, it, it needs to work for humans. Otherwise, it's just not a sustainable project. How do you see humans being a part of these studies? For my work anyway, I can't speak for everyone's, but for my work, it's to better understand in order to help management and practice. So the stakeholder is at the core of every project. And like you said, it's not going to work if it's not going to work for humans. So, But I think and ultimately, theoretical ecology or blue sky ecology can only take you so far. And I think it's brilliant for looking into things that may help us in the distant future. Now, it's not my field, so I can't really speak on it. But applied ecology is what's needed at the moment. It's looking at these kind of TB and clear forestry or oil and gas and a deer population. And it's saying taking into account the human interest but also the ecological picture how are, how are these two meeting in the middle and at that uh, clash what is the outcome now and then how can we inform an evidence-based way to manage that going forward so whether that's insects on a bog or if it's wolves in Yellowstone National Park I think that's the type of science that is probably paramount at the moment because of human encroachment into wild spaces and human population growth it's going to continue to happen I suppose one of the fears I have, and I get this from my own research, is not so much when we fail to only take nature into account, because I, as we've talked about, I don't think that that's really fundamentally possible if you want to have an actual impact. It's that when we overfocus on aspects that are measurable. So if I'm looking at like climate change or, you know, bogs, which is my particular area, people are just mad into carbon. How much carbon can it take in? How much carbon does it release? But they're not really looking at things like biodiversity. They're not really looking at things like water quality. For any natural system to work, it really needs to work on these loads of different levels. But do you see that being an issue in your field as well, where like people are kind of like too focused on like a particular measurable? Like, I don't know, maybe like the kind of carnivore species, like wolves or things like that, but they're not like focusing on the smaller species that maybe 
uh, matter more or well not more but matter just as much well what i love about the quantitative aspect of it is you're not making those decisions it goes back to that kind of detective outlook you had earlier you may be looking at wolves in yellowstone national park but how, how the way the way the model works is you feed it data and it soaks up what you're feeding it and then tells you what's important so if you're if you're not looking at this holistically then you're not going to be able to infer from the model what the system is doing correctly because if you're only feeding it what you're looking at then you're only going to get that perspective out of the model so you need to feed it things like invertebrates small mammals birds soil water courses habitats because if you don't then the model is going to attribute more importance to to something else and what's brilliant about it then is the model will will infer what's important even if you include everything else but it's accounting for that whereas if you haven't accounted for that then you're unsure that it's not accounting for that if that makes sense yeah so it's kind of the the classic any model is only as good as the data you feed it and one of the things that i haven't i was interested in my first year i haven't explored it since is because the habitats we're looking at are so modified now things like habitat suitability modeling you're feeding in data from today's landscape and for instance ireland is a vastly different country than it was 200 years ago 500 years ago 1000 years ago and now that more habitats are starting to rebuild things like storks are coming back and we're saying like oh this is where where that species is is that's the habitat it favors but we're giving it information from a very degraded environment so then are we looking to protect a degraded environment or and that's where you need to do more broad-scale analysis things like all of europe not just ireland for instance and but yeah it's kind of a it is that interesting aspect of what goes in must come out for for models Mm, mm. yeah and it's true it's like this whole kind of there's an argument a lot in i think environmental circles about like restoring versus like rehabilitation and like the idea of restoring is kind of nonsensical because most of these ecosystems take a very long time to form so you can't really restore it to what it was you can just try to make it as good as it can be right now right i suppose that kind of feeds in nicely actually to this which is that if if we're talking about ireland specifically in 2019 eamon ryan came out to say that he would like to see wolves reintroduced in ireland um, which was met with some ridicule. But it's something that's actually been said quite a lot in Ireland over the last few years. And the last wolf was con- was is thought to have died in Ireland in 1786. It was hunted to death, most of them were. And as you've said, our society and our landscape, everything has changed. So like, is it really feasible to reintroduce wolves into this completely different system? So... The wolf thing in Ireland is, I, I personally think it's fascinating. And I, I first got interested in this during my undergraduate. And I still think, this, I think today it's probably a lot more popularized than it was back when I was doing my undergrad. I think when I was doing my undergrad, none of my friends, I didn't even know that we had wolves in Ireland. I always thought that Ireland was relatively boring ecologically, that you had to go to the wilds of Canada or the, the Rocky Mountains to see these kind of spectacular landscapes or the jungles of the Amazon. And then you, you scratch the surface and you realize that not only our ecology, but like our history and culture was so altered by that period of colonialism and our landscape, particularly quite recently during the Cromwellian era, uh, there, was a, there was a lot of deforestation prior to that period, but I think there was aggressive deforestation, the removal of Irish from the landscape and the removal of cultures and, and, and practices, things like Breton Law which had written into it that Irish could only keep three different species that occurred in the landscape as pets. That was part of the, the Brehan law, wolves, red deer, and foxes. So that kind of shows you the, 
the respect that Irish have for the wolf. And obviously, like we're not not to romanticize it, the Irish killed problem wolves, and they were mainly agricultural farmers, so they they had conflicts with wolves, but they never seek the whole scale eradication that happened in the UK and um, in a lot of the continent actually, because wolves kind of were pushed to the to the east and to the kind of high mountain areas in Europe, where they that was their last refugia until a more kind of environmentally sound public started to arise in the late 70s. Do I think it's feasible now? No, because we're still living in that landscape. We're living in that altered landscape. We're also suffering from a kind of a cultural amnesia because we have that disconnect now. We're not the same pastoralists who lived amongst these animals. We're now kind of a a different type of culture. We're a different type of modern Ireland. But do I think there's a vision for the future where it's possible if we adopted a new culture and a new mindset. I I would like to hope so, but I'm I'm not going to state clearly that I think it is. So specifically on the wolf issue, my understanding is that in Europe, the reason why wolf populations that are quite small are able to survive is because they have this lifeline, this let's call it a genetic lifeline of the Alps. So essentially you have wolves that can live and move throughout the Alps in fairly unpopulated areas and feed into other communities of wolves, bringing in new genetic material, which prevents them from being like inbred. Is is Ireland big enough to have a large enough population of wolves that they wouldn't be genetically screwed? Wolves might be the most malleable species on the planet. And I think, put it this way, if you dropped 500 wolves here and you took away any kind of way to kill them, they'd be absolutely fine. Would there be livestock depredations? Absolutely. Genetically, ecologically, they would survive. When you plant the human element on top of that now you're introducing habitat fragmentation you're introducing culling and there would be disconnected islands of populations and that would require a huge amount of management unless there was a regeneration of corridors that allowed them to move freely but in ireland like we have something like 136,000 farms in the country most of them are small fragmented farms most of them are livestock farms like it's something i can't envision but there's a there's a vision that i can see that is somewhere in the future might be possible so there's like there's countries like uh, bhutan that have, have specifically created these wildlife corridors throughout the country and i think they followed um i want to say it was a tiger like or, or maybe it was a snow leopard from the very north of the country all the way down to the south just following these corridors so it's definitely possible but i think you're right it requires a change in mindset that i think irish people just aren't there yet so i think there's two elements to it um the first is the kind of wildlife corridor one is my colleague Holly English. She's working a lot with foxes at the moment and she's tracking foxes in Dublin. And there was a, a brilliant uh, plot of data she showed me last week of a fox going from inner city Dublin all the way into the Phoenix Park just using green spaces. So it did. It was traveling along an urban wildlife corridor into the Phoenix Park, which is obviously quite a large habitat for a fox. The second part of that then is more to do with the mindset both in terms of the wildlife and the humans. Number one, the wildlife, like it's it's the constant story of the big bad wolf. Wildlife aren't looking to infringe on human territories. Most of the time they're quite shy. I spent eight weeks in, in Canada and the US this summer and to, to find wildlife is, even in these areas where wildlife are so rich and so dense, is an absolute joy to behold because they tend to stay out of the human eye. And the secondary part then is in Europe, you were saying the Alps are this lifeline. I would say that that was probably true until the mid noughties or the, the late 2010s, whereas now wolves and bears and like large predators in totality are coming out of these areas now and they're they're transversing across human population areas. So 
the Netherlands is a third of the size of Ireland or half the size of Ireland and it's got three times the population and they now have a resident population of wolves but it's because no one had to stand in front of the the, the parliament there and say we're going to bring them back and give the chance for farmers to be outraged they crossed international borders which obviously it's different on the continent unseen and they blended into the landscape they had pups obviously there is instances of livestock depredation but by the time those livestock depredations are occurring the population is established so under the habitats directive then those animals are officially protected whereas in ireland because it would have to be a planned reintroduction we have a, a lot bigger task ahead of us if, if we're ever to get there so so what i'm hearing you saying is we should just parachute some wolves in and just let it go like you know what i mean i know a few people who wouldn't who wouldn't oppose <laughs> the idea but that but that is true and i'm not advocating for this i'd state that clearly if wolves managed to somehow find their way into the Irish landscape, they would be protected under the Habitat Directive. And we would be forced then to figure out scientific ways to manage these populations and ensure that they aren't illegally removed from the landscape. I was actually very surprised the other day to find out the beavers never lived in Ireland. Ah, uh, we don't know that. That's... We don't know? No. Okay, because I looked it up and I was like, why aren't we reintroducing beavers? Because they dam up bogs and we'd be, gra- we'd be grand. We don't know that they weren't there because the fossil record is obviously so fragmented. But also, there's kind of the debate now and, and the rewilding sphere is kind of, it's taking off and going out of control. So I was very early on interested in it. And when it was kind of, when they were like, there was a paper, I think, rethinking rewilding. It was these kind of initial definitions. And I was very, very interested in rewilding. And having taken a step back and kind of re-interested in it now, I can't keep up. It's It's gone everywhere. And it's, it's, very, it's a very heated topic. Mm-hmm. But I think the historic premise which is species that were there should return why and how far do you go the pleistocene or further should we put hyenas in dublin and and lions in in london because they occurred there in in the fossil record so you've kind of talked about how you hope that there is this like future where wolves can be reintroduced but i suppose fundamentally that's going to come down to uh, obviously the landscape but also the willingness of people to live with and deal with the reintroduction of these animals so do you think there is actually a tolerance in ireland for going through this kind of transition phase and for reintroducing wolves like do you think there's there's a there's a desire for that so i think how everyone tends to think about wolf reintroduction to ireland is this singular event as in the day that you really reintroduce wolves and the conservationists will quote the effects in the Ellison National Park and talk about all these brilliant trophic, trophic cascades, so the effect the wolves will have in the wider ecosystem, and the farmers will then retort by saying that there will be all these livestock depredations. I think through thinking about it a lot and studying it a bit, I think it's far more likely to be a continuum of cultural change, political change, political will, landscape style change, and I think we're in that continuum now. If, if it is leading to that, I think the beginning is already we're already at the beginning of it i think that ireland's public is far more ecologically and environmentally educated than we've ever been and i think the next generation like will laugh at how educated we think we are and um, i think the political will is there you said eamon ryan brought it up in 2019 i think that agricultural systems are changing the new cap is bringing in far more uh measures for nature the landscape and the people on the landscape in terms of what's economically viable to farm or is there better options than farming? Certain cohorts may want to abandon the land and, and try something new. So I think that 
even if the, the motion was passed to reintroduce wolves, the continuum doesn't start there, it's already started, and we're already in this kind of transition phase that will lead to a tolerance, that will lead to a more educated public, will lead to a, a different, more mixed agricultural landscape, more capable of supporting ecosystems and wildlife. So just there you're talking about that we're already on this trajectory, right? Which is great. It's great to hear. Very happy about that. But I suppose then before you were kind of talking a little bit about like, you know, rewilding and, 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 and like where we're headed with this. So I suppose, you know, kind of at the end of the podcast, when we're talking about this, could you maybe like give us a view of like, what are we aiming for? Like when we're, when we're rewilding, when we're re, um, when we're trying to rehabilitate these, these areas, like, are we, are we aiming at like a, a past or are we aiming into like a future that's different? It depends on who you ask. I personally think the future, like it has to be a future that's different. It can't be a replication of the past. Wolves are controversial, but they're a great poster child or a great poster species for this conversation because it's controversial. It, it brings people who typically wouldn't be engaged in this conversation into this conversation. But I, th- I think regardless of what side of the ecological political spectrum you're on, whether that's hardcore reintroduce everything or you're uh, a bit of more conservative and you're saying you're a farmer and you've livestock and you've very valid concerns about that and you want them to stay the same we're all hoping for the same thing and that's a landscape that is richer in, in biodiversity more capable of supporting agriculture more capable of of weathering the bad times and propping up kind of both our livestock and, and the crop industries from a cultural perspective we have a connectedness to nature places where we can walk and kind of lose ourselves in the magic of of old growth forests and from an economic perspective things like tourism things like resilience that we're saying with respect to farming invasive species wildlife disease all these things get better when there's more complete ecosystems so i think regardless of where you fall or what your beliefs are i think having a better environment to live in with respect to human health welfare it benefits the whole population Will there be some bumps and bruises trying to get to that point? And that point may not be wolves. I certainly wouldn't prioritize it. I think there's a whole spectrum of things that we need to focus on first. And and even after wolves, there'll be a whole plethora of problems. After that, I learned from a trip to North America this summer where the, the goal of the trip was to go over to the, the gurus of wildlife management and learn how they manage these massive problems and then bring home the solution. And what I found is in ecology and wildlife management, there's always a crisis. Quite an interesting anecdote, if we have time for it, is uh, the mountain pine beetle in Canada. So it's this beetle that infests pine forests. And the natural way that that beetle is regulated is through forest fires. So when the when the settlers came to Canada, they repressed forest fires because they were dangerous. So now 150, 200 years of repressed forest fires means the fuel load has gone up which means we're now seeing A, cataclysmic wildfires across North America, and B, mountain pine beetle infestations across the woodlands. So there, although they have these beautiful ecosystems, through the management of them, they've created problems, which they now have to solve. So I think there'll always be problems when managing nature because nature inherently does not want to be managed. It's always trying to find a way to get around things. Yeah, and I think actually that that really like is a great example of what you were talking about before is it's never one factor i suppose just to finish off so before you talked a bit about how irish people are kind of disconnected from our historical and cultural connections to nature and how we interacted with it you, know, you talk about breton law and, and things like that 
I suppose the, the question I would have is, is as somebody working in this field, as somebody who deals with these large scale issues, how, how do you see us reigniting that spark to allow us to, to reconnect in that way or maybe a new way to nature? I think it goes back to how this podcast kind of started with storytelling. I think if you don't understand or if you don't, if you're not aware of what was there, you can't critique what is there now. But if you go for a walk in Wicklow National Park, you can feel like you're in pristine wilderness because you're up in the Irish uplands and there's rivers and it's beautiful. And Collie Ennis, uh, who's a research officer here in Trinity and a good friend of mine, he was a, a great mentor for me during my undergrad here. He, he hit me with this quote. Now, the man is a gentleman and a scholar, and I don't know if he invented this quote or if he, if he pillaged it from someone else. But he said, walking through nature is like walking through an art museum where all the photos are turned backwards. And the more you understand and the more you're educated on those ecosystems, the more photos turn around and you can admire the beauty of them. And I think that for me has always rung true. So walking through these forests in Wicklow, my girlfriend sees it as a chance to get out of the city and to, to walk through a bit of nature and you might see some signs of deer or signs of badger and, and that's brilliant. What I see is I see monoculture sicca spruce, I see bare forest grounds, I see rhododendron, I see bare hills and it's kind of the antithesis of beauty but it's still an understanding and I think telling these stories of what the Irish landscape used to look like or what it can look like, kind of a natural regeneration. If people care enough, then they'll go to politicians and that's how change ultimately starts. So I think we are in that continuum. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good way to put it and a really nice way to end it. I think my understanding from what you're saying, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that history is important as a way to understand our current context, but it's not necessarily the be all end all of what we should aim for, right? We're aiming for a new way of living with the natural world around us, which is informed by the past, but is not necessarily controlled by the past and i think that's a really nice way to look at it i think acknowledging those who live on the land and that kind of stakeholder is, is so important and i think it's far too easy for academics and and scientists in the ivory tower to sit here and say don't do that and again like it's a nice way to kind of segue back to how we started this podcast with storytelling i think the data can tell a nice story that shows people who are actively involved in working the land who know the land intimately what might happen if they continue to do so and that could that could be far more influential and i think we need to move away from kind of yelling advice at people who actively live on this land and who it's their home like so i think we need to go back to storytelling and kind of say rather than official advice tell a story of what might happen and how we might improve things and make things better so yeah like a thousand percent agree with you it's one of the things that i kind of like bang on a lot about as well is this idea that it's about storytelling. If you want to change anything, you need to be able to tell a story about it because that's how people understand. That's how people learn. That's how people empathize. Well, that's why, to be honest, we're talking about wolves now. That's why the wolf story exploded and got like 26 million views on YouTube because they didn't say wolf reintroduction led to trophic cascades. They say wolves change rivers. Mm. And then it was up to everyone else to be like, gee, that's interesting. Why? And I think you're far more likely to communicate science that way rather than this kind of very rigid statistical and of course there's a time and place for everything but ultimately the public are the ones who demand change and they're the ones who need to win over so i suppose what i'd uh, want to just finish on is is there anything that you think like is, is a common misunderstanding about what you study that you would like to set the record straight on i've touched on it a good few times during the podcast but i think the narrative that we're in a doom and absolute doom situation 
and then no one's doing anything about it. A huge amount of my work is across three of the most important sectors for change, so academia, the lay public and consultancy, and government. And I know that there is concerted efforts on all sides, be that through policy, be that through research, or be that through practical changes on the ground, that everyone is doing their best to understand uh, why things are happening and, and make and make good changes. I think obviously in every sector there's bad actors and they probably get the most headlines, but I think that we are in a on a positive road, be that at the beginning of it. And I think rather than complain and moan about how we're in the end of time, I think getting behind the people who are actively making that change, supporting politicians who are pushing through kind of climate and biodiversity agenda, supporting farmers and educating yourself on the local agricultural systems around you and the local forestry systems and getting interested in research so things like point of science are, are a brilliant way to kind of connect with the research that's being done so i think that the biggest misconception is that we're all screwed and that there is people good good people working very very hard every single week of the year to, to make good change and that change is, is coming through constantly yeah i agree completely on that and also i would like to say to our audience that we did not ask for the point of science shout out but we very much appreciate it yeah, listen, thank you so much for your time. And uh, this has been really interesting. And I didn't really come into this thinking we'd talk about storytelling quite as much as we did. And it's a personal interest of mine. So I, I've really enjoyed that aspect of it. Is there anywhere that people can find you or follow up on stuff that you're doing? My Twitter is Kills Research. Google Scholar is where you can find all my research. And yeah. Thanks so much for your time. And we've really enjoyed this conversation. Likewise, thank you very much for having me. Absolute, absolute blast. That's everything for this episode. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to find out more about us or Pine of Science Ireland, follow at Pine of Science, i.e. on Twitter and Instagram and find us wherever you get your podcasts. Killing can be found on Twitter at Kills Research. This podcast series is produced by Olus Productions, bringing you more on science, society and all things in between through multimedia. This episode was made with Aneta Nagudi on sound with editing assistance from Daniel Giffney and research from and editor Goody. Thanks to the co-directors of Pine of Science Ireland for 2023, Ashley Gorman and Kevin Mercurio, as well as SFI. And thanks again to Killian for joining us on the episode. It was a blast. Pine of Science Ireland is a part of the global initiative, Pine of Science, which aims to bring the research to you, the people that fund it. We'll see you next month. This has been Peter Labarki-Cox. Thank you for listening.